like to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. We're going to be looking at 39 through 54. This is, again, part of our series through the book. It's been said that it's shallow enough for new believers to wade in, but deep enough for theologians to, to sink in. But we don't want to miss the simplicity of the overall theme and message. And that's why it's called just that simple. Believing in Jesus equals Life. So this morning we're continuing that series, looking at John 4, 39 through 54, on page 889, and this will close out chapter 4 this morning. Go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, We ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We freely and joyfully confess that this is the inerrant word of God. God breathed. These are your words to us, your revelation, everything we need to know. Not everything there is to know, but everything we need to know about you. So Father, this morning we ask you to open our eyes, help us to see what's here and how to apply it in our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeff was six, and he had a classmate that lived down the block named Steve. And Steve got a new bike. And Jeff liked it a lot because it was a dirt bike. It had knobby tires and a black seat. And it had foam grips on the handlebars. And Jeff's bike was just a regular red bike. So he asked his mom if Steve could come over. And although they weren't friends, his mom said, sure, okay. So he invited Steve over to ride bikes. And soon after Steve got there, Jeff said, hey, can we switch bikes? Can we trade? And Steve said, okay. And so for the next hour, Jeff rode Steve's bike around The next day at school, Jeff ignored Steve, as did most of the other kids. Steve was not very well liked at school. So Jeff avoided him pretty much the entire day until at the very end. And then he said, hey, Steve, do you want to come over again and ride bikes? And Steve lit up. He said, sure. Yeah, he was just happy someone wanted to to hang out. So he came over, and as soon as he came over, Jeff said, hey, let's trade bikes again. And so they did. And this happened one more time, and and Mom caught on. So one night after dinner, Mom approached Jeff and said, Is Steve your new friend? And Jeff shrugged his shoulders. I don't know. And she said, Well, Steve thinks you're his friend, but I'm concerned that the only reason you're inviting him over is so that you can ride his bike. Are you? And Jeff didn't say anything. And then she said, you know that's not right to have him over if all you want to do is ride his bike. Mom was right, of course. It's true. That wasn't right for Jeff to have him over just because he wanted to ride his bike. That was using him. And we understand that this is true in all our relationships. There, there are right reasons 
to befriend someone and to seek someone out. And there are wrong reasons to befriend someone and, and seek someone out. And that's true of Jesus as well. Let's think about it this way. If, it, if there is a, a, a right reason in our horizontal relationships with other people, and that matters, how much more so in our vertical relationship with God does our reason for coming to Jesus matter? And in John chapter 4, Jesus makes it clear that he wants us to come to him for the right reason. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the importance of coming to Jesus, and we're going to talk about the importance of coming to Jesus for the right reason. Let's read chapter 4, beginning at 39 until the end. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. The the woman's testimony was summarized by that statement, He told me all that I ever did. And last week we saw that this functioned as a preview to the townspeople to get their attention Her testimony was that she had found the Christ and she testified to his supernatural knowledge of her life. In other words, she told her story. She she went to the townspeople and she told her story of what he said and how she came to faith in this person who she believed was the Christ. She didn't have to be Nicodemus. She didn't have to be a a Pharisee. She didn't have to be a well-learned scribe. In Jerusalem, she simply had to tell her story. Likewise, we don't have to be a professional evangelist or a New Testament scholar or a seminary professor in order to tell our story and for God to use that story 
to draw others to himself. One of the reasons I enjoy teaching the new members class is because I get an opportunity to hear each person's testimony, every person's story about how they came to Christ. Each one is remarkable. Each one is powerful. Each one glorifies God. And each one ends with them placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let's never underestimate the power of our own story or our own testimony. God can and does use that to bring others to Christ. In verses 35 through 38, Jesus taught about a spiritual harvest. We talked about that last week and how it was now. It was immediate. Here we see evidence of that spiritual harvest. People were ready to believe. Their hearts had been prepared. They've been prepared by the Old Testament prophets. They've been prepared by other teachers. They've been prepared by John the Baptist. Now they're ready. They want to hear from God. So they asked Jesus to stay so they could sit under his teaching, and he stayed for two days. If only we could go back and get a transcript of what Jesus taught for those two days. But we don't. But even though we don't have a transcript, I think we can safely conclude that he taught about himself and about the gospel and about the kingdom of God. I think we can also conclude that he explained the scriptures to them. We see him doing that with other people whenever he taught. He explained the scriptures. And as a result, it said many more believed because of his word. Some had believed because of the woman's testimony. Now many more believed because of the teaching from Jesus for two days. And they said, it's no longer you. It's no longer just your testimony. In other words, thank you. You got us this far. But but now our faith and belief has been strengthened. It's been clarified. Every time we read God's word, every time we hear it proclaimed, every time we, we get taught from the word of God, our faith is strengthened. It's clarified. It's brought into focus. It's filled out. It's been said that it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. We, we need all of God's word if we're going to live rightly before him. It contains everything we need to know about who he is, about who we are, what's right, what's wrong, what's pleasing to God, what's displeasing to God. And both are equally important. In fact, look at this confession by, by the people that believed. Indeed, the Savior of the world. This reflects advanced knowledge of who Jesus was. He wasn't just a Jewish Messiah. They they understand at this point that he is the Savior of the world. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. Everybody who puts their faith and trust in him, he's their Savior. Verses 43 and 45 are transitional verses. They record Jesus' movements. He was in Samaria, remember, which is in between Judea and Jerusalem down to the south and Galilee up to the north. So he was kind of in between, and now he's headed up north. And we, then we have this parenthetical statement about a prophet having no honor in his hometown. That's a, that's a proverb or, or a well-known saying. And Jesus quoted that in reference to Nazareth. The wording is somewhat difficult, but what John's telling us is that he left Samaria and he departed for Galilee, but he's not going to Nazareth. Instead, he's going to a different part of Galilee. And we're told in verse 46, it's Cana, where he performed the sign of of turning water to wine. So when he arrived in Galilee, 
the Galileans, for the most part, welcomed and received him because many had seen Jesus in Jerusalem performing the signs at the feast, the Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was the seven-day period after that. They saw him performing signs in Jerusalem. Uh, later on, when he's talking to, or earlier, excuse me, when he's talking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus says, the signs, plural, that you do. So he did multiple signs in Jerusalem, for they too had gone to the feast. Now that's a detail that John includes. Let's just tuck that away for a minute, put a pin in that, we'll come back to it. Verse 46, he arrives in Cana, where he had made water to wine at the wedding in chapter 2. But then we're immediately told there was an official whose son was ill in Capernaum. Now Capernaum was about 16 miles to uh, northeast from Cana. It was a little bit of a, uh, it was a relatively long distance back then. Remember, no vehicles. This was on foot, or if you were extremely wealthy, by horseback or something like that, or chariot. And then it tells us an official. Official could also be translated as royal official or nobleman. Um, it was someone who usually served a king or uh, served in a, in a royal uh, ruler or somebody like this. In this case, it was most likely a Gentile centurion, someone working for and under the Roman government. And this Roman official appeals to Jesus for help. And this tells us that Jesus' reputation at this point was becoming widespread. He was becoming well-known in the region as someone who performed healings. The word was getting out. This man can heal. Jesus gets results. If you've got a problem, go see Jesus. So this is what this man does. He learns he's in the area of Cana and he makes the 16-mile journey Remember, again, no cars, no cell phones, nothing. No, no real-time data whatsoever. So there's no guarantee that Jesus is still there when he arrives. Maybe it's going to take a, a day or so to get there. Maybe he's moved on. He doesn't know. The only, this was 16 miles away. It might as well have been on the other side of the world. The only way anyone would know what's going on 16 miles away is if someone literally, physically got up from that area and went the 16 miles and told them and gave them a message. That's it. So he leaves with no guarantee. And whatever business he had, whatever work responsibilities he had, he put those on hold. And he sought Jesus out so he could ask him, to come and heal his son who is at the point of death. Now that's, that's the setting. This official, this desperate father, is seeking out Jesus because his son is about to die. And this is Jesus' response. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Does that sound like a compassionate response? to a desperate father whose son is about to die? Not really. In fact, that kind of sounds like a rebuke. That, that sounds like some sort of rebuff. And in fact, that kind of sounds like a no, doesn't it, at first glance? It doesn't seem like Jesus is very eager to, to heal his son. But if we look closer, he's talking to the official because it says, so Jesus said to him. But he's also talking to everyone else who's standing around and listening. 
If you've got an ESV, you've got a footnote on that you. It's plural. Okay? He's talking to everybody. You all. You all. The, the plural you. So everybody that's standing around him, he's talking to, and he's talking specifically to the official. So he's talking to both. On the one hand, he's talking to the official. This is the desperate father. A desperate father who's willing to go anywhere, do anything, see anybody, do whatever it takes, and he comes before Jesus. And Jesus is telling him, why are you here? Why is it that you are seeking me? What's the reason you're seeking me? Is this some kind of frantic, last-ditch effort? Have you tried everything else and nothing worked? Do you see me as just kind of like a, a tool to fix something that's broken in your life? What is the reason you are seeking me? He's telling the official, you need to come for the right reason. You need to come to me for me in faith. Jesus knows the hearts of all people. Remember, that's one of the things that John told us at the end of chapter 2. He knows Jesus knows what's in a man. He knows what's in this man. He knows that he needed to be drawn out, to be challenged. And so that's what he was saying to the official. Let's see if the official changes his, his approach to Jesus. On the other hand, we have gathered around Jesus uh, all the bystanders, the crowd in Cana. That's why the you is plural. Now, where is he again? Cana. And what did he do the last time he was in Cana? Pretty miraculous sign. Changed stone water jars into wine. He performed a sign. He performed a, a wonder. What might the people be expecting from Jesus now that he's back? Another sign. More wonders. Hey Jesus, do, do the thing. You know, that, that thing where you, you changed the water last time. Do something else. Come on, show us something. What have you got? In fact, verse 46, goes. John goes out of his way to remind the reader what happened in Cana the last time Jesus visited. Did you see that? And it's only been one page turn. Have we forgotten what happened in Cana? No, most readers wouldn't have forgotten either. But he goes out of his way to mention the fact that he performed that miraculous sign the last time he was there. And he also intentionally mentions that the people had seen what he had done. Remember when I said, tuck that away, put a pin in it? Here it is. All these details that John is including into this account, they're there for a reason. They're there to, they're there to show us that the crowd that had gathered around Jesus had seen the sign of the water to wine. They'd seen the signs in Jerusalem. They were there at the feast. All, their impression of Jesus was this guy who did signs. And now they're expecting the same thing. So to them, Jesus is saying, no, I'm not going to give you a sign. The rebuke to them is no show here today. If you think I came, or if you, if you think I came to do a sign for you, um, then, then you can just go home. I'm, I'm not going to do that. You've come for the wrong reasons. You're seeking me out for the wrong reasons. So Jesus addressed the official and the bystanders. He's testing the official's faith and he's rebuking the bystanders, the bystanders that are coming for the wrong reason. 
Well, here's his second chance. Verse 49, he repeats his request. Sir, come down before my child dies. Now, it should be obvious that the official isn't looking to Jesus for entertainment value. He, he's not there to, to have Jesus show him a sign, to be wowed. That's not why he's there. But at the first time, it did seem like he was there for utilitarian reasons. I've heard you can heal people, Jesus. I've got a, a sick son that needs healing. You, you come and do that. I want you to do that here for me. But if we look closely, the official adjusted his request. There's a subtle nuance. And it may not seem like much, but when we remember that every single word in the New Testament, in the entire Bible, is breathed out by God, every individual specific word, then it's a little easier to see this change. In the first request, he asked him to come down and heal his son. In the second request, he simply asks for Jesus to come before his child dies. He's no longer asking for a healing the second time. He's only asking for Jesus to come. In faith, his father's concern is that he simply come. Whether he heal or not heal, that's up to Jesus. He just wants him to come. He's seeking Jesus for Jesus. That's the right reason. He's no longer seeking Jesus simply as a gifted healer for utilitarian reasons, but as a Savior, as a Lord. He's seeking him to come and bring whatever he sees fit. Jesus, recognizing this shift in the request, says to him, go, your son will live. And the man, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke and, and went on his, his way. That's the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for. Someone who comes to Jesus in faith, seeking him for the right reason, and then believing his word. That's what he's looking for. And that's what he got in the official. But for those in Cana who were standing around expecting a show, they were disappointed. No signs here today. Jesus is not in the business of producing miracles on demand. He's, he's not looking for people who only believe in him if, if he does what they ask in their timing, according to their rules. Then the final verses, 51 through 53, these show how the, the official discovered the, the timing of his son's healing. He's returning. His servants uh, met him, told him the good news, and he asks, uh, what time did he start to recover? Now that tells us he already suspects it's exactly when Jesus said the word. And of course that's confirmed. And he believed in all his household. He believed now, he'd already believed that Jesus had the power to heal. Now, now he's believing again. What's, what's going on there? His faith was strengthened. It was clarified. It was brought into focus. We've seen this before in John. Remember back in John 2, 11, it says, and his disciples believed in him. Well, they're already his disciples. So they're already believing in him. And then it says they, his disciples believed in him. It means they believed more. What was cloudy became into focus. What was murky became sharper. It was filled out. And all his household. The official 
and all his family, children, servants, the whole household. This is a pattern we see continuing in the book of Acts, where whole households come to faith and are baptized. We see it in 1 Corinthians 1.16, where Paul says, I, I baptized the household of Stephanus. And then finally, the last verse says, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now, to be clear, this is not numbering the signs throughout the book of John. Remember, we already said there were multiple signs in Jerusalem. There was the water to line, water to wine in Cana. He's saying Jesus performed many signs. This is the second sign he performed outside of Jerusalem and Galilee. Let's briefly summarize this passage, the last portion of chapter 4. Many Samaritans believed in Jesus because of the woman at the well's testimony. Many more Samaritans believed in Jesus because of the word he spoke to them. Jesus then departed from Samaria and traveled to Cana in Galilee, where an official from Capernaum came to Jesus asking him to heal his son who was near death. Jesus spoke both to the Gentile official and to the Cana residents who were present, saying, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. After a second request from the official, Jesus healed his son and sent him away. The sign brought strengthened and clarified belief to the official and his household, but it also revealed the glory of God in Jesus Christ and publicly authenticated his status as authorized sent one from God. There's a few things going on in this passage, and I want to point out a couple of of small points, but points that are worth pointing out. Number one, Jesus talked in the previous section of chapter 4 about bringing in a spiritual harvest. He's bringing bringing in a spiritual harvest from all kinds of people. The first disciples were fishermen. Then we have a high-ranking, well-learned Jewish Pharisee from Jerusalem. Then we have a scandalously sinful Samaritan woman. Now we have a Gentile official who served Rome. When we scan those examples, what we're seeing is extremes going off in different directions. God's grace knows no bounds. Truly, Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is saving people from all walks of life. Number two, look at who Jesus was speaking to. Nicodemus, a Jew. The woman at the well from Samaria. And then now an official from Capernaum who is a Gentile. Jesus is modeling that same order of proclamation that he would give to his disciples later on in Acts. Acts 1.8 says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. It's no accident that John has selected these, these accounts to show us that progression, starting with Jews in Jerusalem, moving out to Samaria, and then finally the ends of the earth. God's grace knows no bounds. And then three signs. Remember, signs are highlighted in the book of John. Uh, We compare them to pathway stones that have been carefully selected and laid down so that John is leading people to belief in Jesus. Uh, Signs usually are a public occurrence. They're usually called signs in the text. Uh, Signs point to God's glory as revealed in Jesus. And they publicly authenticate his identity as the Son of God. So I want us to make sure, I want to make sure we see that this sign meets all those criteria. It was public. There were witnesses. 
There were people standing around hearing Jesus' word. There were the servants that came and reported that his son was healed at the same hour. It's called a sign in the text. Verse 54 says this is a sign. It points to God's glory as revealed in Jesus and authenticates him as the son of God because only God can heal by the power of his word. So this sign communicates Jesus is the son of God who has power to bring life by his word. It's one of the intentional signs selected by John to lead people to belief in the Son. Those are small points, but by far the biggest takeaway in this passage can be found in Jesus' words, unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. This tells us that Jesus is looking for people to come to him for the right reason. Which tells us that the reason people have for coming to Jesus matters to Jesus. He wants people to come for the right reason. He wants us to come in faith, seeking him as our Savior. That's the right reason. It's not to fix our problems as pressing or as as large as they may be so then we can get on with the rest of our life. It's not for signs and wonders. It's not for Jesus to prove himself to us by showing up or, or doing something that we demand that he do. Now please hear me. Once we are in Christ, we are to bring all concerns to him in prayer. We understand all that. It's a good thing to ask for healing or for uh, the job or the new house or the, the, the problems in our relationship. The, everything that we might bring to the Lord in prayer, those are good things. What I'm talking about here is coming to Jesus initially for salvation. We are to come for the right reason. Verse 42 says, we know this. He is indeed the Savior of the world. I hope we all understand that doesn't mean that the entire world is saved. When it says Jesus is the savior of the world, that doesn't mean that every single person in the world is ultimately going to be saved by Jesus. What that means is Jesus is the only savior given to the world. And all those who desire to be saved must go to the savior. We all, every one of us, the Galilean fishermen, the Jerusalem Pharisee, the Samaritan woman, the Roman official, each one of us must turn to Jesus in faith and come to him as our Savior. There is no assurance of salvation in the phrase, Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's merely a statement. It's true, but it's merely a statement. The assurance is found when we can say Jesus is my Savior. Jesus forgave my sins. Big difference. It's been said that our salvation hinges on personal pronouns. Even the demons understand that Jesus is the Savior of the world. They acknowledge that he is God. Is he my savior. 
So that's one of the questions I have for us this morning. Is Jesus your Savior? Have your sins been forgiven by Jesus? Now, while it's true that Jesus demands that we come to him for the right reason, I don't want anyone to think that we have to uh, come to him with a right record. It's true. We, we see this in the passage. He wants us to come in faith. He wants us to come to him as Savior, as Lord. But that doesn't mean we have to have a right record. And here's what I mean by that. I don't want you to ever think that because of something you've done or something you've left undone, or something you are currently doing, that Jesus is not going to receive you. Or that you're beyond forgiveness. I don't want anyone to think that their sin is so dark and so polluted that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cover it. For example, the Nashville shooter this past week. Had that person survived... And had they turned to Jesus in faith, I hope we all realize they would have been received by Christ, their sins would have been forgiven, they would have been welcomed into the kingdom of God. And they would have been standing shoulder to shoulder with, with us in eternity. There still would have been consequences, of course. Those don't go away. But the person's soul would have been saved. Imagine the worst criminal you can think of, serial killer, crimes against children, whatever you want, whatever it is, no one is beyond saving. No one needs to have a good enough record to come to Christ because when we come to Christ, he gives us his record. That, that's at the heart of this great exchange of coming to faith in Christ. The record of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ gets credited to us so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see whatever it is we've done, he sees the record of Christ. That's why it's called grace. Grace is not something that's earned or merited. Grace means we're receiving something that we do not deserve. And when anyone is forgiven by Christ, that is radical grace. We've sinned against a holy, righteous God who is infinitely holy and it's radical grace that any of us are saved. So don't think for a minute that you need to clean house or, or get things in order before you come to Christ. He will take you just as you are. I had a friend who, when we lived in Maine, would sell a lot of cars. He wasn't a car dealer. He just bought and sold cars, maybe as a hobby. He did it a lot. And he did it uh, in, on the side of the road in front of his house. It was that informal. And he said whenever he put a sign in the windshield that, that said uh, you know, how much the car was, how many miles, what year it was, he would also write the word sold as is, where is. Because he, he had too many negative experiences of people trying to go back or saying I found something wrong or something like that. So he says sold as is, where is. In other words, as soon as you hand me the money, and I hand you the title, that's it. If you go out and try to start it up and it doesn't start, that's on you. If you drive it away 10 yards and the wheel falls off, I'm sorry. As is, where is. Jesus takes us as is, where is. 
We do not have to clean up our life. We do not have to make sure our life starts every time. He takes us as we are. So wherever you are at today, Jesus will receive you if you turn to him in faith. If you repent of your sin and believe in him, he will forgive your sins. He will be your savior. Somebody might be thinking this morning, well, that's great, but I'm, I'm in Christ, so I'm not coming to him. So I guess this whole sermon really wasn't for me. Mature believers, sometimes people who have been in Christ for a while, sometimes have the tendency to presume on our relationship with Jesus Christ because it is secure because he did purchase us with his blood, because he loses no sheep that are his, because our salvation is guaranteed. If we are in Christ, then we're in Christ for eternity. We cannot lose our salvation. And because of that, there's a tendency to start to presume on our relationship with Jesus. And we might even find ourselves from time to time sliding towards a utilitarian relationship with him and our prayers might look more like the first request from the Roman official I've got a problem will you please fix it Jesus will you, will you heal me will you heal my son will you heal my daughter will you heal my parents will you give me that job will you uh, give me that promotion will you find the right house will you do this will you fix the relationship will you do all of a sudden we're, we're just doing this and all of a sudden we find ourselves and the only reason we're inviting Jesus over is to ride his bike. Yes, we are to bring Jesus our requests. We shouldn't limit that. We should not ever say we're not going to bring all those requests, but that's not the only thing we bring to our Savior. He's not a tool. He's he's not a utilitarian fix-it man. He is our Savior. And we want to continually come to him for the right reason. In just a moment, we're going to the table, and I want us to use this as a time to refocus and recenter on the reason we come to Jesus. It is because of his body and his blood. He is our Savior. He forgives our sin and gives us his perfect record of righteousness. He paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. That's why we come to Jesus. That's why we come to the table. That's the right reason. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for who you are, for your righteousness, for your mercy, for your grace, You have been so gracious to us. You've been so good to us. Father, we don't ever want to presume on our relationship. We don't don't ever want to be coming to you simply as a... someone to, to take care of what we want taken care of. We want to continually come before you because you're our Savior. Not because of what you can do for us, but because of what you have done for us. 
So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.